is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Have you ever been through something and you don't know what just happened, but you know it was something important to go through? This is that journey for me. Now, guys, that's the opening line from a very, very controversial 2016 documentary called The Red Pill. So if you haven't heard of this documentary, this is a documentary that was done about the men's rights movement. So you may have heard that as MRM, and you may have heard about what the people within this movement are called. Uh, they're called the MRAs or men's rights activists. Now, people in the men's rights movement or the or men's rights activists, if, you are, if you're not very familiar with all that, and to be honest with you, uh, before I watched this documentary, I hadn't heard of a lot of these guys. They're, they've kind of been maligned as being kind of far far out there extremists as women haters. Um, but in reality, it's a movement of men that are trying to make men's issues heard on a larger scale. And even just me saying men's issues, right? You know, you might be thinking to yourself like, what in the world does that even mean? Men's issues. But let's go ahead and get in right now to just the name of the documentary. So the red pill. So most of you out there have probably watched the, the movie, the matrix. So we're talking about the very first matrix movie. So if you go back to kind of, you know, Bay, you know, in the very early part of that movie, you see one of the main characters, Morpheus, he's offering the overall main character, Neo, two pills. He's offering him a blue pill and he's offering him a red pill, right? So if he takes the blue pill, he goes back to sleep. He wakes up back in the normal world and everything is what it is, right? But if he takes the red pill, he stays in Wonderland. I guess I think it was the quote that Morpheus said and the scales kind of fall off his eyes and the real world is going to be revealed to Neo, right? <clears throat> and what this movie is basically talking about is what this documentary is talking about is that the blue pill in this world is that men have all the power, right? That, that the patriarchy and everything therein has complete control over everyone and everything, including in, and to the biggest detriment of women, right? But the red pill is something different. And that's what this entire documentary goes into looking at. But this documentary has it's kind of all over the place in terms of whenever you go to, to see what people are saying about it. So on one hand, you have people calling it, uh, they've called it poison tasting, propaganda, unreasonable, offensive, unbalanced. And even if you look at what the critics say on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics only give it a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. But on the other side, it's been called eye-opening, fascinating, deeply emotional, rich, brilliant. And it's an 8.4 out of 10 on internet, internet movie database. So IMDB. Um, and that's really, really high on IMDB. It's got 92% liked on Google reviews and on the audience side of Rotten Tomatoes, it's at 91%, right? So this, this is an incredible, there's not like a middle road with this documentary. You either think it's the worst thing that's ever been made or it's the greatest thing ever. It's just on both sides. So when a lot of times, to be honest with you, before I watch a movie, I will go to Rotten Tomatoes. I pretty much completely ignore what the critics say and I just go with what the audience score is. But you never see a ton of movies where those two scores are completely this far apart, right? I mean, they're separated by like 60 points on, on either direction, right? So that from the very beginning made me very interested. Like what are the critics not seeing that the audience is seeing or vice versa? But this documentary was made by Cassie J. So Cassie J is a former actress from Hollywood. She was kind of pigeonholed in her own estimation as kind of the blonde who always died in horror films and stuff like that. But she got into acting as a little kid whenever she was really, really shy. Her mom made her get into acting. And then that kind of led her to go to Hollywood. But 
uh, after just doing, uh, having a very short career, rather, she quit acting and became a documentary filmmaker. So <clears throat> Cassie is a self self-described feminist. Um, and a lot of her documentaries dealt with things that are kind of on the left wing vein of the political realm and discussions, right? So she talked about women's issues. She talked about gender. She talked about uh, LGBT rights and different things like that. But after she had just finished doing a documentary about gay marriage and equal rights within marriage, she was kind of looking for what she was going to do her next documentary on, right? So you finish one and you start looking for other topics. And around the time that she was kind of thinking what she was going to try and do her next documentary on, there were two huge news stories that broke. The first was a Steubenville, West Virginia rape case where there was video of the people that performed this rape kind of bragging about it on camera. And it was a very, very egregious and very gross thing that had happened. And also in India, there was a gang rape of a woman on a bus, right? And you could see it on the the bus's camera. You could see it going down. It created a lot of outrage in India. And so this was kind of her sign to herself that she was going to begin researching rape culture. So she was going to be hot on the trail of rape culture and trying to do a documentary about that. Now, doing her research about rape culture, she came across a website called A Voice for Men. And this is a website ran by a guy named Paul Elam. And she found an article on there that it was basically talking about how women wanted to act out their rape fantasies. So as ridiculous as that might sound, like that is an article that was on this website. And so again, she's still kind of researching rape culture, but she was going to look at some of the things that were going to be posted on this website, A Voice for Men. So she began reading more and more articles. And many times she said she had to stop actually halfway because the the content was very, very offensive uh, and explicit in a lot of different ways. But doing all of this research and reading all these articles on A Voice for Men, she kind of became aware of the men's rights movement. So that, that was kind of her first dive into the men's rights movement. And then she decided that she was going to take a very, very deep dive. And she decided that she was going to go down the rabbit hole and do a documentary on the men's rights movement. And obviously to get that kicked off, she was going to need to introduce herself and get to know some of the men's rights activists or MRAs. So, um, in my description of this documentary, guys, I'm going to look at, you know, some important people. And then I'm going to also look at some important topics from the film. Now, I'm not doing a, uh, a review like from beginning to end. I'm not doing a summary or anything like that. I'm basically going to be pulling out high points about these people in this documentary and some of the topics that are brought up in this documentary. Because when you watch it, which obviously I'm going to suggest that you do so, you're going to see that these, these characters and these people that are, you know, these real people, they're coming in and out of the story at different points. And it's usually kind of topic based and there is a narrative arc to this whole thing. So at, on this first part, I'm really just going to help you with some of the most important people from the documentary. So I already mentioned Paul Elam. So he was in many ways, I guess, the central MRA in the documentary, right? So a voice for men founder. This is how the, the director and producer of this film kind of found out that this was even a movement. And he had a very important quote that I found that he said right there in the middle. And it, it had a very profound effect on Cassie as well. And it was this. Trying to articulate the entire men's rights activist platform is like trying to understand a snowdrift, one snowflake at a time. So he he looks at a lot of different things Paul Elam does. And, you know, if you go to his website, some of those articles, like, I just don't know how you could, you know, stomach those or agree with them. But um, he, he really kind of talked a lot about how men need to be seen as human beings not just human doings. I think that was a direct quote from the documentary. Men need to be seen as human beings, not just human doings. So we look a lot at how men are very, very capable 
of providing, you know, uh, money and kind of taking care of a household in that way. And so he thinks that men have kind of been seen as less than human. That's one of his contentions in this film. And also he was, he made a lot of different distinctions about kind of where women's groups, so women's rights activists, kind of where they draw the line. He even made one comment towards the beginning of the documentary, which he said, you know, women's groups aren't complaining that there aren't enough female ditch diggers, right? So it's like, it's a quality for all, but really only on the things that we want. Like we want equality in you know higher education. We want equality in the STEM fields. We want equality with doctors and lawyers and things like that. But you're not really seeing this overwhelming uh, out, outcry from these individuals on some of the more labor-based type things. Then there was another guy in this documentary named Dr. Warren Farrell. You may have actually heard of this guy, but he's a best-selling author and a social anthropologist. And his book that kind of rose to fame for him was called The Myth of Male Power. And some of the biggest ideas from this is that women are seen as sex objects and that men are seen as success objects, right? Women as sex objects, men as success objects. And he really talked a lot about how society has been able to succeed based on its ability to trade its young boys for success, right? So if you think about it, when wars are won, when, you know, new areas of the world were discovered, it was at, you know, the sacrifice of a lot of young, able-bodied men, right? But the interesting thing that I found about Dr. Warren Farrell is that it talked about him that he was one of the early bigwigs of the feminist issue, like the feminist movement rather, right? So he was a big time speaker and he was on the women's side of the issue. He was a member of the National Organization for Women, but as he's going around doing all these speaking engagements, you know, he, he was starting to look at it from the men's perspective as well. And then that started to seep into some of his presentations and into some of his work. And he saw his speaking engagements kind of tank. Like he wasn't really invited back. Um, he saw the engagement at his speeches go down. Um, he wasn't getting the standing ovations that he was used to by doing these, uh, speeches all around the world. And he, he kind of recalled when he went back and first started seeing the women's movement. And so he was studying for his doctorate at NYU in the late sixties. And that's kind of when the entire women's movement surfaced. And he was very, very enamored with it. And he noticed that there was this trend uh, in New York. And I'm sure he looked at some other places where women were marrying men that made a lot of money. Right. And in a lot of cases, it seemed like they just married those men because they made a lot of money. And he looked at it as a form of kind of lifetime prostitution. Right. And, and that men on on the other side of the equation, they always had to kind of wonder if love, if the love was real in the relationship because the money they make, they, they weren't ever really sure that this woman that they were doing life with was actually in it with them. You know what I mean? And so uh, he basically thought that the women's liberation movement at the time would be good for men. Like in to a certain degree, it's because it kind of let them off the hook from being the breadwinner. So you weren't going to have this tremendous focus on the man making all this money and providing as much for the family. Right. Um, and then he also talks a lot about, uh, on his sections of the documentary that, that he's big on the flexibility of roles with men and women. Um, but where the men's rights movement disagrees from the feminist movement is that, you know, basically the feminists think that men are the oppressors and they're involved in a patriarchal world. Well, where men invented the rules to benefit men only. Right. And that's a fairly big point of contention, right? It's kind of, it's kind of hard to, 
deal with both of those at the same time. And another thing that he kind of pointed out that was interesting was just kind of the focus on women's issues in the modern day as opposed to men's issues. And one of the examples that he cited was when you look at prostate cancer and you look at breast cancer, the mortality rates for those two diseases are about equal, but the funding for breast cancer is like quite a bit larger than that for prostate cancer. There's just kind of more of a focus on the women's issues and we'll kind of get more into the reason why, or the guy guess the, the theory as to why that is a little bit later. And now I'm going to talk to you about a guy named Fred Hayward. So he was the founder of Men's Rights Inc. And this guy had a lot of very interesting stories. Uh, and I'm not going to go into everything about him on this section, but, um, he basically talked a lot about how the value of men's work uh, that that we as a society, that we value men's work more than we value women's work, right? And so we've heard this thing, uh, basically that, you know, the lives of women also are more valuable than men's lives. We look at this a lot whenever you see it. And if you've heard any uh, different comedians kind of point this out as a joke, but it's just like, you know, men go down with the ship, right? It's always women and children first. And we always look at these examples of men putting themselves in front of women and children as kind of this cowardly act, right? Um, But we tell men as a society that you have to provide even if the job is dangerous, right? That do whatever you can to provide for your family. So um, he looked at the stat about 93% of workplace deaths are men. So almost everyone that dies in the workplace is a man, right? But then he pointed out war deaths. And I thought this was, I mean, we kind of know this, but whenever you put actual numbers to it, it was pretty crazy. So in the Korean War, there were two female deaths and 36,572 male deaths. So that's 99.9% male. In Vietnam, there were eight female deaths and 58,217 male deaths. That's 99.9% again. In the Persian Gulf, there were 15 female deaths and 280 male deaths. So that's 95% male. In Operation Enduring Freedom, there are 51 female deaths and 2,301 male deaths. That's 98%. And finally, in Operation Iraqi Freedom, there has been 110 female deaths and then 4,302 male deaths, which is 98%. So we see this a lot in these kind of more dangerous types of things that the men seem to be way more expendable, right? So men, we've been told that provider, protector, and initiate relationships, right? That's the role of men. And that's something that is pointed out uh, by Fred Hayward a lot of times in this documentary. And he also talks about how it's, it's so hard to compare how women and men have suffered from sexism, right? And it kind of, I think the example he pointed out was there's no way really to quantify Men living five years shorter, which is on average how how much you know shorter a man lives than a woman in America, versus women making thirty percent less money. Which, if you know anything about that stat, you know that that stat is absolutely ridiculous. Now, I mean, a lot of different feminists, and you've probably seen that on bumper stickers and talked about it on television. That you know, women make seventy cents for every dollar a man makes. That is an incorrect stat. It's absolutely not correct at all. There was a large study that was done, and I'll see if I can find the link and and shoot it out to everybody. But there was a large study that was done. It looked like at the top 50 uh, metropolitan areas in the United States, and it looked at men and women and what they were making in the same exact fields. And whenever both of the parties, so the men and the women worked in kind of an uninterrupted fashion, right? So they didn't take any time off. Women actually made more than the men in almost every single one of these 50 metropolitan areas that they started at. The big difference, obviously, is that some women decided that they were going to take time away from their careers in order to have children, right? Biologically, they're the ones that have to have the children. So when you take time off away from 
from your business to have kids or from your profession to have children. And whenever you come back to work, you're not wanting to work as many hours. You can't expect the pay to be equal because it's just not equal. And one thing I kind of look at this, um, as an entire group of people. So it's there, there's a lot of feminists in the documentary. So Cassie J made sure to talk with a lot of different feminist groups and individual feminists throughout the documentary. And so some of the things that they said is that, you know, the men's rights movement is just part of the backlash, right? So they look at the men's rights movement just as basically a backlash against women getting rights, you know, uh, women kind of developing into our culture, right? Um, it's just that, you know, the men are threatened by the gains that women have made during the feminist movement. And that um, you hear them say that, you know, the world is certainly not tilted in the woman's favor. Um, and that the idea that men are victims just doesn't have any traction. Uh, some of them were actually fairly militant on that point, that it's almost impossible for a man to be a victim of anything when it comes to kind of the male versus female ratio of anything. And in the men's rights movement, um, it's some people even claim that the men's rights movement is the gender version of white nationalism, which I felt was a pretty extreme uh, statement to make, but this guy made it, um, that men aren't disadvantaged at all under the law. Um, they think that men shouldn't have more rights in custody, uh, because women are doing the, uh, majority of child care during the relationship. Um, and then this was one thing that I thought was in- incredibly just insane. I couldn't believe that this was said by one of the feminists in the film, but it was basically that a man can only have, uh, the right to choose about a baby prior to sex. Right. So, cause there's, you know, this drama and this kind of pull as to when does a man have rights whenever the baby's growing in the woman's body? Well, this feminist uh, was basically saying that basically before sex happens is the only time the man has a choice, right? So once pregnant, all the decisions are with the woman because the woman is the most impacted, right? That ultimately she has the biggest responsibility to the child, which I thought was an unbelievably reprehensible thing to say, but it's something that was thrown out there. Um, and one thing that you see during this documentary is, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later in detail, but Cassie was very conflicted while she was going through this documentary, hearing from both sides of this issue. And even in the middle of filming this documentary, she kind of reached back out to some of these groups, some of these feminist groups, and she even entered some uh, feminist groups to kind of help, I guess, ground herself when she started to feel challenged, right? Because again, she was a self-described feminist from the very beginning of this research, but then she found herself kind of questioning all these different ideologies and she was trying to ground herself again. Now, one group that was incredibly interesting from this documentary was a group called the Honey Badgers, okay? So in contrast to the feminists, these are women who support the men's rights movement. So I don't think this is obviously a very large group of women, but there are quite a few women that uh, are supporting the things that the men's rights activists are trying to bring into the modern cultural conversation. And basically, there was this need um, to be able to recognize men that they are vulnerable, right? And how women can be actors, right? How women can do bad things, how women can be violent. But I want to talk about one specific honey badger and her name was Karen Strong. And she was probably the most outspoken of all the ones that we saw in the documentary. But she told an incredible story. So I've watched this documentary twice. And after I watched it the first time, this was probably the very first thing that you know stuck in my brain out of all the things that I heard in the documentary. She talked about a, a story, a really incredible story about Boko Haram. So if you don't know, Boko Haram is an Islamic fundamentalist terrorist organization that basically uh, operates mainly out of Africa. 
And so I think a lot of you will remember when this happened, but uh, a few years back, this was during kind of the latter years of the Obama administration, there were over 300 school-age girls that were kidnapped from their boarding school in Nigeria. So basically Boko Haram came in at night, started burning the place down, kidnapped all the girls, threw them on trucks, and drove them out into the jungle, right? And so we don't know exactly what was happening to these girls. But, you know, we, we do know definitely that they were being sexually assaulted. Some of them were being sold off. Um, and basically there was a, a large international worldwide outcry about what was happening. Right. And, and rightfully so, like no one would say that it was a bad thing, but you saw Michelle Obama, uh, was talking on camera. And then there was this famous picture of her holding, holding up a white piece of paper that said, bring back our girls, which became a global phenomenon, uh, a global movement of sorts. So we saw this in, in all kinds of places. We saw it all over social media. We saw it at award shows, you know, bring back our girls. They were talking about it on Ellen. They're talking about it, you know, at the Grammys, like it was all over the place. Right. Um, and Basically, how this was spun in the media is that these Islamic fundamentalist terrorists were just not wanting these girls to get an education, right? So it was it was this patriarchy, this you know Islamic fundamentalist patriarchy that was just trying to be misogynistic and hold down these girls and not allow them to get an education of any kind. That's how the mainstream media spun it. But in reality, these men in Boko Haram didn't want anyone getting an education like anybody, because a lot of these boarding schools, they were teaching more of a Western, you know, sometimes secular style of education. Right. But the one big thing that is pointed out here in this section by Karen Strong is that there were many earlier attacks. And this is the key part of this entire story. Okay. So thousands of boys and men had been killed, um, in, in kind of the lead up to them kidnapping these girls. So in the years prior, thousands of boys and men had been killed. But when you look back on the stories and how they were covered in the media, they were always described as people or villagers or uh, students or pupils, something like that. They were never called boys. They were never called men, right? And in the previous attacks on the schools, Boko Haram actually divided the girls and boys up and let the girls go. Like they actually let the girls go. They said, Hey, go back home, you know, pray for forgiveness from Allah and live a righteous life under Allah. Right. But basically, as soon as they let the girls go, they burn the boys alive. Right. These were in some of the previous attacks on the schools and the media was completely silent about all of this. I mean, thousands and thousands of people were dying and, you know, hundreds and hundreds on, on a kind of a monthly basis. And the, the international media was fairly well silent on it. I mean, it was being covered, but not in any major way, right? The media was silent on this issue until the girls were kidnapped, right? They didn't give any attention to the murdered boys. But as soon as the girls were just kidnapped, then that was, you know, that was too much. That was too far. And... This was exactly what Boko Haram wanted. The entire time they're doing all these things and killing all these boys and burning people alive, they wanted attention. And then they finally realized that they were not going to get it if they were just going to continue killing the boys. So they just kidnapped the girls. And then all of a sudden, the UN, the Obamas, everyone was ready to launch into action, right? You know, how can we get money together? How can we get military together to go and get these girls back? And, you know, the point that Karen pointed out in this section is that maybe if somebody had done something well before this time, 
like, you know, when the boys were attacked, the girls would have never been kidnapped. But you can't do a bring back our boys campaign if all the boys are dead, right? So uh, the, the thing that was pointed out here is Boko Haram, in a lot of ways, before they kidnapped these girls, they were acting chivalrous. They were there or they were being chivalrous, right? They were they were <laughs> separating the girls out because they didn't want to do anything to them. And so I thought that was an incredible story that was told because I remember being back at that and just thinking, being back at that time and thinking, man, you know, this sucks for these girls. And we, I wish somebody would figure out how to do something. Let's send the seals over there and have them go take care of business. But yeah, you never heard about the boys that were killed in all the, the months and years prior to that. So those are just some of the important characters in this documentary. But now I want to go over some of the important topics that were brought up. And the first topic, obviously, is going to be patriarchy, right? Because this is the single greatest evil, like the great devil plaguing women is this quote unquote patriarchy, whatever that is. And so in the documentary, it talks a lot about how originally in the 60s and the 70s, the enemy of people kind of on the political left was capitalism. Like capitalism was the greatest whipping boy of all these people that wanted to basically rally against something. But then the feminist movement kind of switched from capitalism being the enemy to patriarchy being the enemy, right? You know, all men are essentially the enemy. And the patriarchy essentially was a result of gender roles. Right. So what we've seen passed down through hundreds and hundreds of years of gender roles became this evil, overwhelming power called patriarchy. And, you know, women's power and responsibility is normally in the reproductive sphere. And for men, it's in the productive sphere. And so that's one dichotomy that's talked about in this documentary when it's talking about the patriarchy. It's kind of what we normally assume when we look at women's and men's roles. But the one thing that, that they talked a lot about in patriarchy, because there's a lot a, a lot made about how, you know, only about 20% of women in Congress, are, or there's only about 20% women in Congress, rather, and how, you know, a very small percentage of Fortune 500 companies have uh, female CEOs. They basically were talking a lot about how much you have to give up in order to be a big dog in politics and in business. And that simply there are more men that are willing to do that than women, which I thought, you know, it's a very interesting thing. But if you if you look at it, that's actually fairly true. When you look at the patriarchy and you look at all these evil things, it's not as if there's a bunch of women that are lining up that just don't have the opportunity. Right. A lot of these men have sacrificed their entire lives, sacrifice their family, sacrifice their health in order to attain superiority in a lot of these spheres where we look at things being very influential or very important, right? So patriarchy is obviously a big theme in this documentary. Also, we look at issues of custody, paternity, and father's rights. And so it was pointed out in this documentary that for the most part, a lot of men come to the men's rights movement or become an MRA um, after a divorce where they lose custody of their child, right? Because what we see in our social justice system is that about 80% of custodial custodial parents are women, right? So only about 20% of men get custody of their children. So that's a rather small percentage. And basically the court system is communicating to us that moms are more capable of providing parenting, whereas dads are more capable of providing a paycheck. Right. So this is kind of the other side of patriarchy, where it's just like, you know, men are expected to make the larger amount of money so they can they need to spend time not parenting, but they need to spend time out making that money. And so one thing that Paul Elam pointed out is it's kind of the uncle daddy syndrome, right, where you basically get granted access to your children every other weekend and, you know, every odd number year at holiday or something like that. But it's kind of this uncle daddy syndrome. 
But it was also pointed out that women have an unbelievable amount of power in the area of paternity and custody and those different things. And there were three stories that were pointed out in this documentary that I thought were just gut-wrenching and just horrible. So there was one about a South Carolina man whose daughter was adopted away by the mother without his knowledge. So he did not even know that that she was pregnant. He did not even know that he had a kid and she adopted this child away and he had no legal rights to this child. And he was trying to fight to get some sort of rights to his child, which he was not given, right? Because the woman did not have to get his consent in order to do that. There was also a Colorado man whose wife left the state on purpose in order to give birth. And she did that specifically so that the dad would not have rights to the kid. I think she was in Utah and like drove to a different state or something like that. But it took this dad a four year legal battle just to get visitation of his son. I mean, just think about that. You had a woman who did a very evil thing, drove to another state to keep her, you know, the kid's biological father from having any part to do with him. And it took him four years and untold amounts of money just to get the right to visit him. And then there was a Utah man who basically was told by the mother of the child um, that he, the child was going to be given up for adoption, but she gave him such last minute notice to where he literally only had literally a few hours to try and file all the paperwork to stop the adoption, which was impossible to do. And so he lost complete rights over his daughter. So it just talked a lot about these, these different issues that are going on with custody and paternity rights. But the biggest thing that I was talking about in that sphere in the documentary was about paternity fraud. And this is something that, you know, we assume that it happens, but just when you hear these stories, it just becomes an unbelievable reality. But wrongful paternity could be innocent, but paternity fraud is purposeful, right? That is deliberate fraud. You know, if you have a woman who sleeps with, you know, multiple men inside a week and gets pregnant, she just doesn't know exactly who the father is. She takes her best guess. That's wrongful paternity. But paternity fraud is something where the person is deliberately trying to be fraudulent in in how they're dealing with the individual and how they're dealing with the person who's actually going to be fathering the child or who actually did father the child, right? So one of the craziest stories from the entire documentary and just thinking through this, I want you guys to kind of put yourself in this guy's shoes just to see how you would react. So this was in Texas. There was a family that had five kids, right? I think it was all five boys. And so um, one of the kids got into an accident of some kind and they had to go to the hospital, right? And so when they got to the hospital, they needed a, a blood transfusion of sorts. And basically you can go to the immediate, you know, paternal father, you can go to the father and get an immediate blood transfusion. But in order to do that, the hospital obviously has to do a check on the blood and all that. So the dad said, absolutely. I want to give blood. Let's do this test. Let's get this going. And then they did this test and they go, I'm sorry, sir, you're not going to be able to donate. You're just not going to be able to donate blood. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is my son. Like, what in the world are you talking about? And they kind of had to break the news to him at the hospital that they're like, sir, I'm so sorry. This is not your son. Which, you know, his, his kids in there who's had a terrible accident. And now he had to hear this from the doctor and kind of long story short is that what ended up being the case was that none of the kids were his. Like none of the five sons were his. They were all the sons of a guy that lived down the street. Yeah. Think about that. So the mom of these children knew the entire time that it was not the, the guy that had been living with her, her husband, it was not her kids, right? She knew that all five of the children had been parented and fathered by the guy down the street. And so here you have this guy He's, you know, been raising these kids as his own for so long. And then all of a sudden he's gut punched with that. So just deliberate paternity fraud. 
And there was also a story about a Michigan man who was on the heels of going to jail because he owed $30,000 in back child support to the mother of a child that isn't even his. So the state's about to put this guy in jail, right? Ruin his life and dragging him through the court system because he hasn't been paying child support to a woman who's lied about who the baby's father is. So what ended up happening is at the hospital, the woman just had to put someone's name down and she put this guy's name down, but they did a paternity test and that is not his child. So paternity fraud was obviously a big part of this documentary as well. But one of the the largest sections of this documentary and really one of the more, um, kind of disgusting things. And one of the things that, you know, you, you don't really think about on a regular basis was domestic assault and that, you know, there's a lot of different areas you could go. And I don't go into, you know, all the things that was talked about in the documentary here, but uh, police basically don't take female to male domestic assault that seriously. That's something that we see a lot um, in that there are men that are being arrested, even when the female is the aggressor. That's just kind of the default nature of things. But the reality is, is that there are plenty of men that are on the receiving end of domestic violence, right? So the the stats are are fairly damning that, you know, about one in three women is going to experience domestic assault. And also one in four men is going to be the victim of domestic violence. So one in three women and one in four men, like that's actually really crazy. In 2014, the center for disease control, they released these numbers that in 2014, 5.4 million men Uh, had been victims of intimate partner physical violence, whereas 4.7 million women were victims of intimate partner physical violence. 5.4 million for men and 4.7 million for women. This goes completely against the narrative that we get, right? That that women are just beaten on, on on this regular basis and that it's never an issue that happens for men. And then one thing you look at and one thing that's incredibly important is if a woman is being beaten by a man, which it obviously happens and it's way, way too common, there are domestic violence shelters and there's literally over 2000 of them across the United States. They get a lot of funding and they take in these women that have been battered. However, if you're a man that is on the receiving end of a female aggressor, there is only one domestic violence shelter in the entire United States that will take men. There's one. So out of the over 2000 domestic violence shelters, only one of them takes men and it's located in Arkansas. And, you know, almost all of these shelters are state funded, right? And um, it's just a really important thing to think about that, that we don't normally think about that as an issue, right? And one thing that we, we look at is there's a lot of different things that if you brought it up in another context, we would just think it was crazy. So one thing that was brought up in this documentary is that 78% of all suicides are men, right? So if suicide prevention services were only extended to men, we would see the inequity almost immediately, right? Like we would think, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's, there is 22% of women that, that are killing themselves. Why would we only give this, this right and for service and for help to men, that doesn't seem great. That doesn't seem like a very good idea. <clears throat> there was another character uh, from this documentary named Erin Pizzi. So she was actually, she's a big men's rights movement uh, person now, but she originally came to prominence because she founded the first ever women's shelter. So this was back in the UK in 1971, right? And so 
But the reason why she has kind of become maligned by the women's rights movement is because she acknowledges and was one of the first to vehemently talk about this. She acknowledges that domestic violence is almost always consensual. So she's been barred pretty much from every uh, feminist movement and all these different rallies. And she's even been barred from her own shelter. You know, the, the shelter that she founded where she paid for the building because she dared to say that women could be and in a lot of ways are as violent as men are. And we see a lot uh, from the other feminists that are mentioned in this documentary. They kind of come out and say that domestic violence is just a euphemism for wife beating, that they don't even acknowledge that this could possibly happen to a man. And that when this is addressed as a men's issue, it normally when it is addressed as a men's issue, it's, it's because it's blaming the men entirely. Right. So whenever you hear about domestic violence and you hear about the men's side, it's because the men need to fix this. Like the men need to be the ones to to fix this issue that it's basically only happening from a man to a woman. One thing I talked about in here as well is that um, if you are convicted uh, or if Alicia brought up on charges of domestic abuse as a man, you basically have to go through counseling. Uh, and if you don't go through certain types of counseling, it could increase your sentence and different things like that. But it talked about this thing called the Duluth Power of Control Wheel. And this was something that was made in 1977. But this is basically the lens through which all domestic violence programs has to have to view what happened. And this is what the entire domestic violence industry is based on. And it's all about men. And it has these eight categories on this wheel and it applies only to men and how they treat women. So here are the eight categories. It talks about using coercion and threats, using intimidation, using emotional abuse, using isolation, minimizing, denying, and blaming, using children, using male privilege, and using economic abuse. And basically, if you deny that you're a domestic abuser, that you're automatically, you're just in denial. Like, it's not that you're denying that it ever happened. It's just that you are actually in denial. And if you don't admit it, 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 basically, if you don't complete this course, you could go to jail. It could increase your fine or or whatever the things that's basically happening with you. And so one thing we see, and this is another important topic uh, based off of this, is just kind of how militant the radical feminist movement is. So I'm not talking necessarily about first wave feminism, but it's the radical ends of second and third wave feminism. And basically a lot of feminists have gone through and successfully been able to advocate for the rewriting of laws, but it's only the laws that help women. So when, when men have tried to rewrite joint custody laws so that they could actually have more right to their kids, feminists fight against that. You know, feminists have fought against, you know, very, very violently. They fought against not actual violence, but they fought against paternity tests at birth as being some sort of a infringement on the rights of a woman. And, you know, feminists are, have actually been fighting rape laws, including men, right? Specifically in India, they were, you know, people in India were trying to make sure that men that were raped would be able to be included in these rape laws and feminist groups have actually fought against that. So, um, it just became clear a lot in this documentary. And again, you're looking at kind of one person's point of view at a time and there's, it's, there's this overall narrative arc, but anytime a point of view is presented, that's contrary to kind of the accepted feminist view, um, it's shut down or shouted down. So it looked at a lot of these speakers, a lot of these uh, characters that I've talked about in this documentary, when they've gone to speak on college campuses or anything to do with the men's rights movement, there's like rioters and picketers outside, you know, they'll go inside, uh, of the presentation and they'll just make a lot of noise and make it impossible to hear what the speaker is saying. They'll pull the fire alarm in the middle of a presentation. Like it's just, 
a lot of different things become shut down or disrupted anytime any point of view is presented that way. And Cassie J, guys, like she's been destroyed for this documentary. I mean, this is, you know, just a little uh, blonde woman who just decided she was going to study this and all of a sudden she's presenting it in the way that she found it. And she has just been raked over the coals. Like she's just been lambasted. It's, It's really been nuts. And, you know, the conversations on this topic are being silenced. And that's one thing that she found as she was kind of going through this entire process was that a lot of these voices, you never hear them because it doesn't fit a particular narrative. You know what I mean? But one of the last things I want to talk about here is a really awesome thing that I saw Cassie do. And that is that she basically kept a video diary during all these interviews and research. So she was filming and doing the research for this documentary over about a year. I I think it was, she mentioned that it was about a year. I think it went far beyond that, but she did something that was very bold and very ballsy. And so she kept a video diary the entire time. And she included a lot of parts of the video diary in the documentary. And one of the cool things that you can see is you can see her views being challenged. Like you can see it as the arc and the narrative of the documentary is being, being presented to you. You can see that her views are being challenged directly. And she even admitted that within feminism, she could draw on personal experience as a woman, right? She, she could always draw on those things, but she couldn't do that with the men's movement because she wasn't a man. And, and at the time that she was doing this documentary, I don't think she was in a relationship with a man. And so that's kind of one of those things. It was hard for her to sympathize. But she became very uncomfortable with the concept that women actually have it pretty good. And, and just think about that. The, the realization that women in modern Western society actually have it pretty good made her uncomfortable. Like you could just see it. You can see it in her face that she was so torn by that. And then she wondered if men tune out the feminist movement because they have it so bad on their side too. That when you, all you hear is the feminist talking about how bad things are for them and the plight of the, the modern woman. And then these men are experiencing all the things I talked about earlier, like these issues with paternity fraud and these issues with uh, custody battles and different things and doing all these difficult and dangerous jobs. You know, they, they don't want to hear a feminist get up and tell them again about how bad they are. So in one of these diaries, she mentioned that uh, she was actually thankful that she wasn't born a male. Like she was thankful that she was born as a female in this society that she's in and, you know, that she herself was not sure that she would want the responsibility of, of dying to sacrifice for the greater good or of providing in some sort of a, of a massive way. And in one of the videos, she actually becomes visibly upset, uh, when, when her paradigms were being challenged, right? So you can see her going back and forth and back and forth, even in the same statement that she's making to the camera, because she's being challenged so in such a big way, right? And it was just a big time struggle for her to try and find truth. Cause we all, we hear that, you know, the truth is always somewhere in the middle, but these two camps, basically the, the feminist movement and the men's rights movement, they couldn't have been, you know, any farther apart. Right. So where is that happy medium? Where's that happy middle? And she, she really never thought that she'd be doing a documentary on men's rights movement and it would challenge her feminist ideology. I mean, again, she wasn't exactly proof texting when she was going in trying to make this documentary. She was honestly curious about the men's rights movement and she thought she could do a good job uh, of telling their story. And then obviously she was going to just keep her own sentiments. But what she found is that the MRA's points were substantiated by the data that over and over. And just to be honest, guys, when you watch this documentary, you're not going to necessarily see yourself in a lot of these guys. 
some of these guys uh, seem to ha- be really well put together. Some of these guys, maybe not so much. Um, but she could just see that no matter how the data was presented to her from all these different MRAs, that it was substantiated, that these guys were not making up the plight of the modern man in a lot of these different areas. And it just kept putting her on the defensive. She just kept finding herself on the defensive. And at the very end of the documentary, she makes a a fairly incredible statement. Um, And it's the very, very last line of the documentary. But I want you to watch the documentary so that you can hear it for yourself. Okay. This documentary is well worth your time. And so I think the arc and narrative of this documentary really makes the last statement that she makes just that much more impactful, right? Because it's just something that you were not expecting from the very, very beginning. And even throughout the documentary, you just never could have expected she would have said something like this. So those are just kind of my thoughts, uh, summarizing some parts of the documentary, some of the important people but also some of the important topics that were brought up. But I want to give you guys some reasons why I think that every man should watch this documentary, right? And I understand we all have our different tastes. We all have our different things that we're into. But here are 10 reasons that I think all of you guys listening to this should watch this documentary. So the first reason is we see a great example of someone being open to changing their mind and then having the guts to be transparent. So this is something that we may not think to ourselves like, man, that's like, that's a good thing. But how much do we see this anymore? We just don't see people that are really open to having their minds changed, right? I've talked about this a lot in other episodes of this podcast, but people just want to be in a silo, you know, in an echo chamber where everyone is basically saying the same thing and corroborating something that they already believe in, right? But Cassie J was brave for doing this, right? You know, we live in an age right now where an Olympic hero that cuts off his dick and calls himself by a female name, we call that person a hero. We call that guy a hero, right? But this is, I'm not going to say this is heroic, but this was a brave thing for her to do, to to be this transparent, to say that she was an avowed feminist, but then she was going into this, you know, this men's rights movement with an open mind. So I think that's a great reason to watch this. The second reason is that it's always a good idea to see two sides of a single issue. So as I just said, don't be the guy that's always looking to echo chamber yourself. Don't just read things that already agree with your political ideology. Don't just listen to podcasts that already agree with your worldview. It's always good to see two sides of a single issue. Another reason to watch this documentary is that it's always a good idea to see how complicated a single issue is. So if you look at this as just the men's rights movement, that is not big enough. That's not a big enough way to think about this. Even if you look at this as the women's rights movement versus the men's rights movement, that's also not big enough. There are so many things, guys, that I didn't even talk about. Again, I only have so long to record this podcast, and this is a two-hour-long documentary, so there's a whole lot of content in there that it just didn't really fit into what I wanted to share with all you guys. So just you have to be able to see how complicated even a single issue can be, and I'm absolutely positive that there were other pockets of pain and other other veins of these stories that we didn't even get into, because even as the documentary filmmaker admitted, she only had a couple hours in order to tell this entire story, right? So another thing. Another reason why you should watch this is that it's popular and it's relevant. Yeah, it was made in 2016, but it's it's made the rounds. It's on a lot of different avenues, and it was actually suggested to me by a female. On social media, there was someone that shared, I shared some article about how uh, boys are suffering in modern society, and someone sent me uh, a suggestion that I should listen or watch this documentary, and you know, it, it's been great, and I'm really glad that she did that. A fifth reason, I think, is that it's a conversation starter, guys. I think this is a great thing that you can do uh, a great thing that you can watch with other guys 
and you could come together and discuss it afterwards. Um, watch this with your wife or girlfriend or something like that. See what she thinks. You know, if you know a feminist in your life who's, you know, fair-minded, someone who's going to be able to look at things objectively, have them watch it and you watch it yourself and then come together and talk about it over coffee. I think that'd be a really cool thing. It's a, it's a great conversation starter. There's a lot to talk about. Another reason I think every man should watch this is that you don't want to be caught off guard when these topics come up, right? And by these topics, I mean the topics that are talked about in this documentary. So some of the favorite things that feminists like to argue about and some of the favorite things that men's rights activists want to argue about and want to bring up. So you don't want to be just caught unaware and you all of a sudden are in some sort of a political discourse or discussion with somebody that's like, oh shoot, I, I don't really have a fully formed opinion on this. Another reason I think you should all watch this is because men's issues are real. They are. And just even stay, saying that statement, some people are going to be like, oh gosh, here we go. This guy's going to be talking about men's issues when there's all this plight of all these other people in the world. And I get it. We're all in a post-three, you know, post-Genesis 3 world. That's where we're all living. So we're all living in a broken world just trying to do our best. But there really are men's issues. I talked about a lot of them up top, so I'm not going to re retell them now. But there are issues out there that need to be discussed. Another reason you should watch this documentary is that men's issues are trending in a bad direction. So when you look at um, what what guys are doing in higher education, when you look at different things that are happening in the workforce, we're not seeing things really going that particularly well for men. Uh, it's really trending in a bad direction. And so, and it's only becoming worse. Like there doesn't seem to be this big revolution of focus on, you know, boys um, transitioning into manhood in a proper way. You know, you don't see a lot of guys calling for, Hey, why is there less than 40% males in higher education now? Why are 40, why are so many men kind of, you know, failing out of college? Why are they leaving college early? We're not seeing this big public outcry for the plight of men. Right. And since these issues are trending in a bad direction, the more you know about them, the easier it is going to be for you to recognize it in your life and to be able to have an effect on yourself and the men around you. Another reason I think you should watch this documentary is that we need to be able to stand in the breach for the next generation of men. That's something that we need to be able to do, right? So when we become a sage of sorts, so at some point in your life, hopefully you will be able to transfer to uh, being the guy that has the wisdom. So you're the guy in the neighborhood with the wisdom. You're the guy at the church or the guy at your job that has a more of a wisdom filled approach to things. You're going to need to be able to stand in the breach and help out the next generation of men. You're going to need to help them understand what's going on inside their heads, inside their hearts. You're going to need to help understand the spiritual issues that they're going to be going through, the societal and cultural issues that could be crushing them. You need to be able to help out with that. And a final thing that I think, our final reason rather that we should all watch this and that all of you should watch this documentary is it's an opportunity to take the red pill. Right. So that's obviously a play on words from something that, you know, has gone on with the the naming of this documentary. But there are always opportunities to have your eyes opened to reality. Right. But normally we get to choose whether or not we go down that path. Neo in the Matrix had a choice between the red pill and the blue pill, and he chose the red pill. So we always need to look at things within culture and see if there's a way to understand it outside of the normal accepted cultural narrative. So when we look back on history, we always look at these things that happened in history. Like, how could this have happened? Like, how could people have followed Hitler and think have thought his ideology was great? Like, how could people have gone along with some of the atrocities that Genghis Khan thought was, was a good idea? We always look back, but then it's just like when you're living in that time, it's so hard to pull yourself out from ground level and ascend to the 30,000 foot view to look at the entire situation. And also, guys, look at it from this perspective. The gospel 
is probably the biggest red pill ever, right? Because think about it. We're, we live in this secular age and we live in this, this very non-theistic age where everything culturally is pointing in that direction. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the red pill. It is the reality that we all need. If you take the blue pill of culture, you're just going to sink right back down into what culture is telling you to do, right? You know, do what makes you happy, you know, seek out opportunities uh, to follow your heart and all these really, really stupid pieces of advice, right? But the gospel tells us a different way. It tells us a different way to act in this world. So for a lot of you listening to this podcast, you've taken the red pill. Like you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those of you that don't, all you have to do is accept it. Like you just have to believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he was raised from the dead and that he died for your sins. That's what you need to do. There's not some sort of like crazy 27 step thing that you need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God. Like you just got to, you have to believe in that. And, and that's the red pill guys. So this is another opportunity for you to take the red pill and something that would be incredibly beneficial for you. All right, guys, so we're going to do a quick resilience boost before we let you go. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry, and our mission is cultivating manly resilience, and specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, and today, we're going to focus on mental resilience, and the challenge to you is to watch this documentary. So guys, there's a bunch of different ways that you can take down this documentary and and take a look at it. So it's only two hours long, and it's available for free if you have Amazon Prime or Hulu, so if you pay for those subscriptions, but also you can rent or buy it on iTunes, YouTube, Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, a lot of different places, and so I'm going to provide the links to all those here in the description for this podcast, so you can make sure to go and do that. But guys, the, the challenge here is not just to watch it and then move on with your day and move on to your next show or just do your thing. Watch this and talk to somebody about it. So if you've got a best friend, make sure he can watch it. Uh, Maybe I'll watch it at the same time. Maybe I'll watch it separately, but get together and talk about it. I think this is really important. I challenged you earlier. If there is someone who's a little bit more on the feminist side of the issue, why don't you have her watch it? See what she thinks and and just be okay with the fact that when y'all do come together for coffee or something like that, that perhaps this individual is not going to see it the same way as you do. And that could be a woman or a man, right? So there are men that kind of fall on the feminist side of of issues. So just be open to having that type of discussion. I think it'd be very beneficial for you. All right. Thank you guys for listening to this podcast. As always, we would like for you to subscribe to this on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share all this on social media. If you use the hashtag Undaunted Life, or if you tag us in it, we'll find it and we'll give it a like. If we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. And also guys, I am booking speaking engagements for 2018. So if you want me to come speak to your company, to your team, to your church, to your Sunday school, to your camp, just hit me up at info at undaunted.life. Again, that's info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife and facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. You can check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Fanta Anthem. Links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.